What does God want? Despite all the ways that selfishness really does color this question for most of us, the question of desire is an important one. It matters. How we answer that question reveals things about ourselves and about our heart. And so we're going to look at that today. And we're doing that as we move from the book of Exodus, we've been in Exodus for the last 10 weeks, to the book of John. Now, John is not the normal choice for Advent. Most of us really like Matthew and Luke. We like the stories of wise men and shepherds and angels and visions and dreams and fleeing from evil kings, and right? It's dramatic, um, and it's, it's interesting. And John doesn't give us any of that. There's no shepherds. There's no wise men. King Herod doesn't show up. Um, John's advent, the gospel of John, as, as he begins to tell us of the coming of Jesus, is very different. He gives us a, a different window onto the season. He gives us what some people have called a heavenly perspective, a perspective from what God is up to rather than what people are up to. It's not an entirely fair contrast because we see lots of what God is up to in Matthew and Luke as well. But we're going to look at John this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And we're actually going to spend the next three weeks in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And we're going to look at the question this morning, what does God want? And we're going to answer that in three parts. So we've got a three-part sermon coming up. We're going to answer it in terms of desire, delight, and duty. That's where we're going to walk, desire, delight, and duty. But we're going to start in the Scriptures. So turn with me to John chapter 1. If you've got a phone or a Bible, you like to have it in front of you, but it is on the screen. And please stand with me for the reading of the Word. And I like to say, because I'm the one who needs the reminder most, that this is the best thing you're going to hear from me this morning. So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, 
grace and truth came through Jesus the Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness, your truth, your grace, your light. May our eyes and ears be opened this morning to you, and may you speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So John begins in Genesis, and I, and I hope you all caught that. I read Genesis 1 this morning, in the beginning. It's the first words of Scripture. And then you come to John chapter 1, in the beginning. And you're supposed to catch the echoes. And the echoes go for 13 verses. He's talking about, in the beginning was the Word, and you remember in the beginning God spoke, right? He says, let there be light, and there was light. And that light was the life and light, or that Word was the life and light of all men, and you're thinking about life, and you're thinking about light, and it's all Genesis language. And sometimes you get to verse 6, and it feels like he takes a hard left turn, right? Because the first five verses are all very... Uh, abstract, very like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and it was with God, and in Him was life. And then verse 6, there came a man. But he's still playing with Genesis, because what happens on the sixth day? God makes man, right? Adam, from the earth. Um, there was a man who came, who sent from God. His name was John, and he came as a witness. And this has been the job of the people of God since the very beginning. The people of God has, have always been called as witnesses. Adam and Eve are called as witnesses. Moses, Abraham, all of the people of God are called to witness his glory and his goodness and his life and his light and to testify to that before the world. You get to verse 9 and John shifts back into this big picture. He's talking about how he was in the world, he now being the Word. One of the things that John is doing is he's, he's building anticipation. He's playing with themes that people who know the Old Testament, the Jews primarily that would have been reading this, they're getting excited, right? Because he's talking about God at work in the world now as he was in the beginning. He's talking about us being called to the same position that we've all been called to. And then you get to the drama, right, in verses 6 through 9, or sorry, in verses 10 through 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, right? The light shone in the darkness, but the darkness didn't overcome it. And you're getting these tensions starting to come. And what a lot of us don't realize is we don't know who he's talking about yet. You go 17 verses before he tells you who he's talking about, before you hear the name Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and when you finally hear his name, he's being contrasted with the most important figure of the Old Testament, Moses, right? Um, Moses, who is the author of the first five books of the Bible, who wrote Genesis that John has been playing with for the first 13 verses as he interacts and gets this rising anticipation towards this moment where he says, for the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus. And then you're like, what? What a lot of us miss along the way is that John doesn't stay in Genesis. When you hit verse 14, he moves from Genesis to Exodus. He actually walks 
in the early chapters of his gospel through interacting with a number of different pieces of the first five books of the Bible. And when you hit verse 14, a lot of our translations miss this. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word in Greek for made his dwelling would be much more accurately translated as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And considering where we've spent the last 10 weeks, that might set off a few links, a few hyperlinks, a few like, oh, wait a second, we've been talking about the tabernacle. Exodus ends in Exodus chapter 40, and the tabernacle is finally built, and the glory of God fills the tabernacle, and the pillar of cloud and fire rests above it, and nobody can go in. And you get to verse 14, and here is John saying, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. It's all Exodus language for the next several verses until he starts talking about Moses. We're sitting in the Exodus. Because once again, this is what John is trying to do. He's trying to tie us back to this story, the one that, that all of these people around him who are hearing this gospel are thinking like, is this finally happening? Is this story finally going to continue? Right? Exodus ends, and the glory of God is among his people, but none of them, none of them can come near. And you walk through Israelite history, and the tabernacle becomes a temple, right? And they, they build the temple on the same model. And Solomon prays his prayer of dedication over the temple, and the glory of God fills the Holy of Holies in the temple. But they still can't go in. Once a year, one person with great caution and preparation gets to enter the presence of God. And Israel, with God in their midst, continually worships idols and turns away and makes the same mistakes as the people did in Exodus that we walked through for the last 10 weeks. And finally, the prophets have a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And the people are sent into exile. And the question they're left with for hundreds of years is, will this ever change? And so when John writes in verse 14 something that is so incredible, we can't fully understand it. You're meant to sit up and take notice. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God comes to dwell with his people again, but not in a pillar of fire and smoke over a tent or a temple, as a human being. I want to read you a quote. Think about those words. This is from Christopher Hall, by the way. Think about those words. God becomes a man. The highest entity there is, Not just the highest creature, but the incomprehensible reality that creates all creatures. The high sovereign who is above all we can conceive becomes the lowest. Not just a man, but a boy. And before that, an infant. And before that, an embryo. And before that, a single fertilized cell. Or again, not just a man, but a peasant. And then a despised criminal. And then a corpse in a tomb. From every angle, this kind of colossal descent is almost unfathomable. And it is matched on the other side by an equally colossal ascent. 
For the Christian teaching is that humanity is rescued precisely by being placed in Christ, by dying with Him and rising with Him, by inheriting a new kind of resurrection life, and by being seated in the heavenlies with God Himself. It's an incredible story. It's glorious. It's amazing. And it ought to make us ask, why? Why would God go through that? Why would God go through that colossal descent to become the least and the lowest and to die? And that ties exactly into the question I asked earlier. What does God want? He wants to be with us. It's the same thing we've said multiple times through the Exodus journey. God longs to dwell with His people. It is His love for us and it's his desire to be reconciled that makes God become flesh and tabernacle among us. One of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is what God wants so deeply that he sends his one and only Son, that whosoever trusts in him, whoever walks in allegiance to him, shall not perish but have eternal life, will have the right to become children of God. It costs him dearly. It takes a long time. His people reject him many times, and John lays that out from the very beginning. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They chose darkness instead of light. We do it all the time, and yet God pursues us over and over, again and again, grace upon grace. It's glorious. He makes a way where there's no way. This is the depths and the strength of God's desire, of his faithfulness, of the power of His righteousness, of His justice and His mercy and His grace and His love. It's the heart of God towards us. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about all the ways you might answer the question, what does God want? We have a lot of bad answers to that question. God wants me to do better. God wants me to be perfect so that He can accept me. No, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. God wants me to be moral. Look, all of these answers have a piece of truth. God does want us to do better, but not so that he can accept us, because he loves us. In the same way that you look at a friend who's hurting themselves and you say, man, I wish that that wasn't the case. Or you look at a child and what you want is for them to learn and to grow and to mature and to understand. It's not because you don't love them, it's because you do. And while they're in that place, while they're lost and hurting themselves, while they're immature and they're young, you love them and you walk with them and you pick them up when they fall down and you stay with them. Because in the midst of all the other things that you want for them, what you really want is to be with them. They're your friend, they're your child. They're your family. All of the rest of the things that God wants for us flow out of His love and His desire to be with us. Right now, this minute, that's what God wants. Hasn't changed. It's never changed. What it does change is how we begin to think about the question, what do we want? What are our desires? It takes on a new tone when you ask it in light of God's desires. 
I can tell you in preparing this sermon, I reflected on this and realized that most of the time I want crumbs compared to God's banquet. A lot of the things that consume or, or take up the focus of my desires, they're nothing compared to what God wants for me and for us. At Christmas, we're reminded again and again of what God has done to lift us up out of that place, to lift our eyes from the, the dirty crumbs that we focus on to Him and to all that He has for us and to Himself and who He is. The problem for many of us around Advent and other seasons like this is not that it involves too much stuff. Stuff is good. God's created everything, and it's there for us to enjoy. The problem is the way that we turn our desires inwards. We curve them back to ourselves, and we twist ourselves up till it's all focused back on us. We are very truly desiring beings, and our desires are shaped and formed, and they grow. And we know this if we stop to think about it. You know that your desires now are not the same at all as they were when you were a kid. If you have children, you've watched their desires change, sometimes frustratingly so, right? Because they told you they really wanted this thing, and by the time they actually get it, it's like, what are you doing, Dad? Do you hate me or something? It's like, no, you said you wanted this. Well, that was a month ago, right? But we train our desires. We train the things that we want. And unfortunately, we are surrounded by the consumerism, which primarily is trying to shape our desires to just want more stuff. Again, stuff isn't bad in and of itself, but if that's the primary focus of our desires, we're in trouble because there is no real satisfaction in things. Things are meant to come alongside of what really satisfies. Good food should support good fellowship. And in that context, it's amazing. But if your life is about good food, you're in trouble, right? And the, the classic word for that is gluttony, right? One of the seven deadly sins. Advent is a season that reveals God's deep desire for us, that we might lift our eyes up gaze upon what He has done to be with us and allow that to begin to reshape our desires because what we look upon shapes us. Our lives are filled with opportunities to shape our desires. So why advertising and stuff like this is so effective? It really is. Every one of us says, oh, but it doesn't work on me. Sure, just 90% of everyone else, right? Um, but our lives are full of these moments that give us this opportunity a couple of months ago, our youngest, Eliana, who's three years old, had a terrible day. And I mean a terrible day from the parents' perspective, okay? I don't know how she felt about the day, but she was awful. <laughs> she, was, she was disobedient, and she was throwing fits, and she was refusing to listen, and like, end of the day, it took hours to get her to bed, and I don't remember, it was late when she finally got to sleep, and Christine and I are exhausted, and... Um, you know, you breathe that parental sigh of relief, like, okay, I didn't kill them. <laughs> Christina and I went to bed. We went to sleep. I had to be up. Part of the frustration was that I had to be up quite early the next morning. Um, like, 
I'm not bad for a morning. I'm, I'm a morning person, but not like a 5 a.m. morning person, and I had to be up about 5 o'clock. And so I got up at 5 o'clock, and I'm starting to get ready for my day, and Eliana stumbles out of her bedroom. And she's, she, she's not fully awake. She's bleary-eyed and kind of mumbling. And, oh, what's the matter, sweetie? Like, I just figured she had a nightmare or something. She looks up at me, and she puts her arms up, and she says, I need a cuddle. Right? So I picked her up, and I carried her over to the couch, and I sat down, and I cuddled with her, and she fell asleep in my arms. It was the best way to start a day, especially early in the morning. It was so nice. It was such a delight. And as I sat there holding her and watching her fall asleep in my arms, which she doesn't do too often now that she's three, and she's my youngest, right? So I don't get too many chances like that. The Lord spoke to me. And he just said, this is what it's like with me. And I, I, I reflected on this and I thought, yesterday, she was, it was all trouble and we were mad at her. And nothing, like there had been no apology. There'd been no show of understanding. There'd been no repentance. She's three. She doesn't get it. And yet here I am the next morning, just happy to be with her. Just happy to hold her. To do, I, didn't, I didn't like, you want to cuddle? You better fix everything first, right? Like, I didn't do that. I just picked her up, and I cuddled with her, and I loved it. Friends, listen to me. We have the privilege of bringing delight to the heart of God. Have you ever thought about that? I, I think, and somebody else said this, and I couldn't find the quote, um, part of the core of the human vocation is to bring delight to the heart of God. To, to just go to him and say, I just want to be with you. When you do that, like my experience with Eliana pales in comparison to God's experience with us. When we want to be with him. And what's so good about God is that when we do that, we will find that not only have we brought delight to his heart, but to ours as well, because we were made to be with him. And so it fulfills us to do this as well. This takes us back to not really understanding what we want. You know, and to be fair, I don't, know that, I don't think any of us should feel particularly guilty about that. Um, we're, we're, we, we are surrounded by people who are highly motivated to shape our desires towards things that are unsatisfying. Because an unsatisfied person keeps buying stuff. A content person doesn't, right? Once you're content, you sit back and you say, I'm good. This is great. I'm going to enjoy this, right? While you're discontent, you're still looking and you're still searching and you're still... And so there's a lot of interest in turning us away from the things that are actually satisfying towards things that can fake it for long enough to convince us to keep going. What do we really long for in life? What are we actually made for? We're made for fellowship. We're made for relationship. You go back to Genesis, and God creates things, and he keeps saying it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates human beings. He finishes the sixth day. It's very good. But you turn and you keep reading, and there's a not good. You know what the first not good is in Scripture? It comes before the fall. It comes before anybody makes any mistakes. God looks down on Adam and he says, it is not good 
for man to be alone. God is relational and we are made in His image. We are made for fellowship. We are also made for meaningful work. Before Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and are expelled from the garden, before the ground is cursed, God places them in the garden to tend and care for it. To work the garden is one of the literal words that's used. They are given work from the very beginning. We are made for meaningful work. We are made for rest. Again, before anything has gone wrong in the world, God takes the seventh day and He rests and He makes it holy and He calls us into His rest. And in all of these things, we are made to find our joy. But if you think about each of those, they are found most completely and most fully in the person of God. Now, that's not to say that you can't find them and really find them with people. You can, and we're made to do that. We're made to have fellowship and meaningful work and rest in our community. But if we really want those things to be deep and satisfying, God has to be a part of it. He is the one with whom we most deeply need relationship and fellowship. He is the one who alone can establish the work of our hands and thus make it meaningful. And He is the one who alone can give us rest for our souls, right? The real kind of rest we need. We've all been through those seasons where you do something to rest and you get up from it and you're worse than when you started, right? Whether it's a vacation or a TV or whatever it is that you tried to do to rest that it didn't work. In each of these things, our delight is to be in the Lord God. And when it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, part of what he's saying is that delight is available in the Lord because He's with us, because He's here, because He longs to walk with us and for us to walk with Him so that He can fulfill us in these ways as part of the good news of Advent. That's why He does this. That's also why we need our third word, duty. We've talked about desire. We've talked about delight. Where does duty come into this? Ever since, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, ever since Adam and Eve took from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad and were expelled from the garden, God has been on a mission. We often use that word mission and we talk about us going on missions trips and things like this, but, but the word mission means you have a purpose means you have a job, you have an objective, and you have a plan to get to that. And God has been on a mission to mend the tear that Adam and Eve created, to reconcile the relationships that were broken, to heal humanity that was torn asunder and brought into the realm of death, to lift us up to new life so that just as Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening, we can walk with Him for all eternity. This is the mission of God. And every time God dwells with His people, part of what He says is not just, enjoy me, but go to other people that they might do the same. Be a witness. And that's one of the primary words used to describe this duty. Be a witness. Testify. In other words, take what you've seen and tell about it. Mary Oliver has this great poem. It's called Sometimes. And one of her verses goes like this. Instructions for living a life. 
pay attention, be amazed, tell about it. That's witness. God isn't looking for false witnesses, people who can lie about who God is and what it's like and put on a really good show. God is looking for true witnesses who walk with him and know him and experience his light and his life and his grace and his truth and his love and his presence and then turn around and tell other people what that's like and that he's there for all of them. First Peter picks up on this. If you remember in Exodus, we talked about how Israel is called to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation and God's own people. And Peter writes to the church and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. In order that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the purpose. This is the duty that comes with the delight that comes from the reshaping of our desires toward God. And it does need to go in that path, right? Because otherwise you're not a true witness. You, you can't tell people, God is awesome. I've seen him and I know if you haven't actually seen him and know. <laughs> right? So you start the journey. But the flip side of that, though, is it is supposed to be a natural progression. A lot of us think about witness, and that's a kind of intimidating word. And we start to say, well, that's, that's not me. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. Okay, are you a human being? Do you have eyes and ears, hands, a mouth? You're good. <laughs> because what God is asking us to do is to share what he has done in and with and through us. That's it. And you don't have to, and we do this naturally all the time with the things that, and precisely with the things that bring us delight. You see a really good movie you enjoy, what do you do? You tell your friends about it. The producer doesn't have to come on at the end of the credits and say, okay, people, Got a job for you to do now that you've seen this really good movie. Here are the three lessons on how you're going to evangelize this movie, right? Like, he doesn't have to, because if it's a good movie, you're going to tell people about it. If it was a good restaurant, you're going to tell people about it. If it was a good fill in the blank, right? Like, we naturally share the things in which we delight. And that's what we're supposed to do with the gospel as well. One of the ways to, to frame this call is to say that we get to do what Jesus did. Not, not as well, because we're not Jesus, but Jesus comes and the Word becomes flesh. And He reveals to us in His life who God is. And He leaves us with the Word so that we can make it flesh again in our own lives. And he Wright says this really, really well. He says, The whole amazing story of Jesus with all its levels is given to us to be our story as well. The love which he incarnated, by which we are saved, is to become the love which fills us beyond capacity and flows out to heal the word, world, so that the word may become flesh once more and dwell not just among us but within us. Having beheld his glory, we must then reveal his glory. Glory as of the beloved children of the Father, full of grace and truth. Advent is a great season for us to start or continue on this journey, to examine our desires and shape them towards God, and to allow Advent to be a season that does that, to seek true delight in fellowship with God and His people, in meaningful work that He gives us and establishes, and in rest 
And if Christmas is a season in which you find no rest, you may need to change a few things. And then to witness, to take the duty that comes with that desire and delight and to tell other people about it. And to be, for those around us, the word become flesh again. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you that you do dwell among us. Thank you that you send your spirit to live in us. May we fulfill the calling to be your people. And may we do so truly, Lord God. Shape our desires towards you. Show us delight in you. For those of us here who have never experienced that, may we experience it for the first time. Your delight in us and our delight in you, Lord God. Take us deeper in that. And give us opportunities to tell others about how good you really are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.